everybody and welcome to another episode of Passing Times. Really excited for today's guest. He grew up playing for Storm and switched to Crush Volleyball where he's a national champion at both clubs. He went on to play McMaster where he's got a Player of the Year award. He's a four-time OUA champion and a four-time eSports medalist. He's in his seventh year of pro, currently playing in Italy, and he's also spent a little bit of time in Russia. He's a Tokyo Olympian and helped the squad qualify for Paris. Please welcome to the show, Stephen Marr. Marr, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, no worries. Happy to be a part of this. So I know you're a busy guy. we got a lot to get to, but uh, a lot of people my age, and I think just fans of yours overall, would remember the Storm and the Crush days. So just take me through club a little bit. Uh, how did you get into volleyball? Because I understand you, your brother was a pretty good player too, right? Was it a family thing that you got into volleyball so seriously? Uh, yeah. So I was a uh, classic younger brother. I was following my brother through whatever sports that we started with. So we started with soccer, we moved to hockey. And uh, kind of landed on volleyball. I had a great elementary school uh, coach, and he was more of a you practice twice a day, every day of the week, and volleyball season was all in, and then basketball season was all in, and then whatever it was. So it was actually just really like the fun social thing for me actually to play. And then uh, so I started playing for Howie Grossier in Storm when I was in 14 years. And um, we won nationals, West nationals, my first year. So I got some immediate positive feedback in my first year of playing uh, club. And then it was something that genetically, I guess, because I was quite tall at that point already, it seemed like a good fit. So I went to Bill Crothers. So for those people who are from Ontario, it's a sports high school. So that was uh, that was actually quite, quite an high-level uh, environment and there was a lot of people who were trying to become tennis pros or people trying to go to junior hockey and there's a lot of people who were at were on a similar wavelength mentally so um yeah i played 14u through 17u for uh aurora storm and then in my last year candidly, i just kind of found that um i kind of achieved the the point where i could kind of decide if i wanted to be the best player in practice um and that was i didn't i didn't like that and and through the summers i had played uh provincial team and regional team uh with some of the crush guys and i knew what it kind of felt like to play at a higher level and that was um something i had also been doing with my brother because he was a year older so i had played a year up with him and that kind of stimulus was gone so uh, I had reached out to John May uh, about joining Crush and being a part of that team. And uh, that was a, was a phenomenal decision because I kind of figured out what a different kind of training environment was. And especially before going to university, I understood what it was like where you don't get to decide if you're the best player. So that was, uh, that was, a, great, that was a great lesson for me. And uh, I was really appreciative that they let, uh, they let me come join the team. I think it's going to be a great conversation whenever we have it with whoever we have it with, but the greatest club team of all time, I think, you know, maybe Holfers uh, might have a claim to that. Maybe the Ketrzynski's and the Pacman squads, but your team having you, Danny Nemininko, uh, Andrew Coker, Reed May, Lucas Coleman, Jason McCarthy, like Will Colucci, who I loved. I got to coach him at UCC, was a bench player, and he went on to start at U of T. That's how good some of the, the box squad guys were on this team. So just tell me what – what and John May was the coach. So just tell me what a, a John May practice was like with those cats in the same gym. Uh, it was actually quite – it was quite, quite a strong emphasis on basics, actually, and doing, doing simple skills – in a tiring way and executing simple skills perfectly. And there was a lot more 
there was a lot more of an emphasis put towards on the mental aspect of the game, which I had not really been exposed to before. And I think that came from a lot from uh, John's uh, beach background and a lot of the guys beach background. It just, it is more of a mental, more mental game, to be honest, just the two of you out there um, and you and your partner and you having to touch the ball every time. And if you take points off, then the set's usually gone in beach. So uh, he definitely brought a lot of that into the indoor game. And yeah, like I said, there was guys every single day who you'd be going against. And it's you you mentioned some of the names, but like Lucas Coleman, myself, Reed May, all extremely competitive people, all playing for similar spots, similar scholarships, similar things in that regard. So I think when you kind of get people like that, but there is a healthy competitive way to to kind of diffuse that energy it can make for a really cool training environment. Um, I will say not my year, but I will say the years because I don't think that's the right way to do it. But I will say from what I saw and playing against crush um, for the three years that I played against them, that that is the best team that there was. I think without me being a part of that team, um, they were the most dominant. And also they went on to win national championships a year ahead with maybe one extra player who was actually of the rightful age. So playing in Europe. So yeah, it's, they were a special group. And your 18 new year, I understand you guys went to the U S a lot and won a couple tournaments. Like I'm trying to remember, we had Lucas Coleman on the show. Did you guys not play club against, was was Ben patch a similar cohort or who were some of the U S cats you played against? Cause you played against some top dogs, right? So we played, uh, Tom Jeschke, who was, uh, U.S. Olympian going, he's playing in Japan right now. Uh, ben Patch, James Shaw. So we actually did, the U.S. system, I think it works a little later than ours, um, but we did the main East Coast qualifier for U.S. nationals, and we won that. And then we did uh, the main West Coast qualifier for U.S. nationals, and we won that. Um, we didn't go to their national championship because it actually ended up being, I think it was around June, and that's quite late for us. But if I'm honest, a lot of our team, that was kind of the highlight of um, of our performance and focus, actually, was that West Coast Nationals, because we knew that was going to be probably the hardest thing that we did in the year. And uh, I, the team did drop off a little bit off that, because then there was people signing scholarships, people's heads were in different places, exams, each national team, indoor national team, and the team actually started to kind of fray apart. More people would miss a practice where something that would never happen prior. So I think we actually kind of peaked at that West Coast Nationals, which was probably about a month before uh, Canadian National Championships. So, yeah, we actually were on a bit of a decline at that point. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, because the the big crush fans, because I was working at the OV at the time, you guys actually dropped a set in the provincial final to Bruno Lordy and the Mavs guys. Do you remember that moment of yeah. like you guys finally like dropped one and it was it was an interesting time. Obviously, you regained it and took it in three, but uh, that that was a close match. That was a coin toss game. Yeah, uh, that one as well as as well as talking about uh, Pac-Man in um, playing that pack. I think it was, I'm not sure it was the semi or the final, but we, we also went to three with uh Pac-Man in the nationals. And that was, I, I, I felt more stressed in that game actually, because I, I'm pretty sure it was the semi. And I think it was more stressful for us because we knew before, I think we were aware that we were putting in more work than anyone was, and we were better. But at that point, I think you kind of lose a little bit of the confidence because you know, 
the team wasn't putting in the same amount of work. So that's uh, your your own little anxieties, your own little demons setting on your shoulder. You can kind of start to hear their voices a little bit more when you know, oh, like maybe we didn't prepare for as like a team playing as well as they're playing, or maybe we didn't prepare as well as we know we could have. And I think that was that was definitely more of the confidence rocker, not really necessarily how they played, but how we prepared. Yeah, so so interesting. I know you mentioned the scholarship thing there. So uh, revisionist history at this point, but uh, I found an article that kind of hinted that you were strongly considering Hawaii at one point. So when you were looking at going to Canada, going to the U.S., leaving the province, what were some things that went into your mind? And were you actually considering going to Hawaii? So I verbally committed to Hawaii. Uh, I had a 95% scholarship. Um, so essentially, I would pay for my food and my flights. Um I was a bit rash with that because also on that team, there was a lot of people going to Danny was going to UCLA. Coker was going to Santa Barbara. There was people going to, to big names. Reed was going to U of A. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know if I got caught up in things, but I think I wasn't really aware of what it would mean to go and be six hours behind in time changing and move to Hawaii. Um, I had gone there on a recruiting trip. I went to a couple of different places on recruiting trips, but, um, yeah, I, uh, at the, at the end of the day, my gut was telling me it wasn't the right choice. And, um, I was luckily able to withdraw because the recruiting policies between like across the border, the, what you're, even if I had signed to go to Hawaii and I wanted to pull back and still go to McMaster where I ended up, it, they're not, the contracts aren't um, enforceable, let's say, across the border. So where I could, wouldn't have been able to go to another school in the States, but I wouldn't have been able to come home. So uh, by the end, I ended up to, to switch back. And yeah, it was a bunch of us ended up at McMaster after that. Yeah, what stood out in your mind, either with Coach Preston or McMaster, just with academically and everything you wanted to pursue? Why was that going to be the right spot for you? Um. In all fairness, I like academically. I was I did what I had to do to play. Uh, my goal was always to be a professional, and I maintained the marks that I need to to maintain a scholarship. So I stayed at about anywhere like a B to A minus type range. Uh, but that was driven mostly on my my scholarship because that was my parents kind of. I had already laid out the financials of taking the scholarship in the states or playing for the national team, getting a tuition card, having quests for gold and having a scholarship and what the kind of financial breakdown would be. Cause also for your parents, it's my parents were really generous and helped me out with school. Um, but to have everything paid for versus you're paying for a full, a full degree. That's, that's quite a different financial reality. Um, so I was quite aware of that. Um, but Dave, Dave was one of the people who really made me aware that um, I could decide, and this was also came from John May, that I could decide how great I wanted to be. It wasn't necessarily a reflection of the people around me. So one of the things that kind of threw me off about the OUA was it's definitely not as competitive as Ken West, for example. Or and the matches that you're playing on a weekly basis are not as competitive. So in that respect, are you going to be able to achieve the level that you want to? And my goals were always uh, Olympics and professional. So once I kind of realized that um, Dave was someone who was going to hold me accountable to those goals, 
um, it was a lot easier of a transition and I would end up being a lot closer to my uh, friends and family, which was important to me. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I know you entered with Danny and Jason McCarthy. You were coming off that crush team. Uh, I think Alex Elliott was still quite young on the Mac team. So who were some of the leaders? Maybe like Jory was ahead of you or some other cats. Like uh, I know you're stepping in with uh, big goals being this first year, but you also like have to kind of get in line a little bit. I think Kevin Stevens was still on the team. Like they had good players, right? So what was that first training camp like knowing that you're thinking national team and Olympian, but you got to still win the spot at McMaster, right? I didn't really play my first year that much, to be totally honest with you. I like I went through quite a difficult adjustment phase of moving away, having total freedom. And my first year was pretty unextraordinary. I ended up making all rookie team and played about half the year, let's say. But um yeah, there was uh Dan Grunveld, Kevin Stevens, Jory, myself, and Jay. So five outsides that were all quite good um for three spots. So uh, yeah, it was it was quite a competitive gym, quite a competitive atmosphere. Um, Alex was definitely a leader for the younger guys. He's always been that. He's always been a phenomenal person. Um, some of the older guys, uh, Ian Cooper, Tyson Alexander, those guys were older guys in my generation, and yeah, they were they were super helpful and they kind of they didn't step in too often too early, but if things were going a little, a little sideways, they would, they would really help you out. So they gave us enough room to grow, but uh, they kept us in line enough because I actually ended with nine rookies. It was nine rookies when my year ended. So there was a lot of shepherding that the group needed. <laughs> so, um, but that stuff, those guys were, those guys were awesome. And I love how you mentioned uh, John May kind of set the table for this in club. And then Dave Preston talked about like you're in control of your development and how good you can be. So how did you stay connected to that goal as such a young man? Because I think it is easy to get distracted. Like you are away from home, all those things you said. So are, are you going to individual practices? Are you getting extra passing reps, maybe off a serve machine? Like when you're not playing, how are you staying connected to these goals? So then you could have a big second, third, fourth year. I started uh, actually my, I went to the junior national team um, in the summer before I entered. And then I took one year off of the national team in my second year. Um, after I had a pretty significant ankle injury, but I, I was kind of flying all year round. And actually around my second year, um, I started to really watch volleyball. And that was probably the one greatest thing that I started to do. I started to work hard outside of the simple things to actually improve, like how I understood the game and to understand what the level was and what was available to me. Um, my second year of junior national team, we qualified for the world championships and I was able to play players around the world who were my age were playing pro. And I was able to see like, I just wasn't at the level yet. And it was interesting. Dave had talked to me about my, about one agent who could get me into Italy that he knew. And, um, this is my agent actually now. And he came to the junior national team, junior world championship. And yeah, they said I wasn't good enough yet. And it was, it was quite easy for me to kind of make the parallels of the level is so much higher than what I'm seeing on a weekly basis. And those memories were pretty easy to etch into my mind. And because I was watching volleyball at a really high level, I was aware that really what is going to cut it here isn't, isn't quite good enough actually. So, um, for that stuff, I was able to kind of take that 
that sort of attention, that sort of focus and place it into how much more can I do to be competing with people at that level, not necessarily be competing to be the best player in the OUA, for example. Is there is there any example you could give us? Because I think you you were a no brainer. Like any coach could walk into the gym and with your size, your arm, like the way you move for your size, like everybody would say that's a future national team player. But what were some things about our sport that you had to understand? Was it maybe like some out of system, maybe green light, red light situations where maybe you're taking too big of a swing on a bad set? Was it managing your serve? Like what were some little things that really made you kind of learn to be a pro when you were still in university? Um, I'll give you two examples. Um, I'll give you my second year. I started watching um, World League on Layola One. I don't know if anyone's <laughs> old enough to remember what that is, but uh, I started watching at that level, and I actually just started falling in love with the game and realizing like how little mistakes there actually are at that level. And then you start to realize that there's an extreme amount of mistakes at our level, and you start to realize that. They also show heights, uh, spike jumps, everything for these sort of players. So you can actually compare all of your numbers with some of the guys that you're watching on TV. And you think, well, I'm, I'm touching just as high as this guy. I'm, I'm just as big as this guy. Why, why, why are you a pro and I'm here? And then you start to realize, like, this guy doesn't make any mistakes. So I think for what I realized is there was a lot of ways to score by watching and and rarely ever do you see the guy, for example, hit the same shot three times in a row. Like that, like there are, there's a wide variety of, of defensive strategies. And I also realized that as I started to play, bro, like it's quite difficult to score actually. And you have to also start to really think about how would you play yourself? And then once you realize what, if someone else is watching you and studying you and in this situation, you do this, well, if you can come up with that information, a scout guy can come up with that information. So then you have to start reverse engineering. Okay, how do I actually find ways to improve at the weaknesses? What do, what do I not do in this situation? And if you can start to freeze frame balls and you say, oh, when I pass inside and the ball goes long side, coming from the long side, I almost always will hit mid-diagonal, long-diagonal, short-diagonal. Like I don't ever let the ball come across to take it down the line. Ooh, I have a meter up the line. And there's three guys defending the diagonal. So I think when you start to break the game down like that and you have not, let's say, let's say video mentors, but you have people that you look up to and you see the mistakes they make and how many of them they make. And then you realize like your soul, the gap is so far. It, it's a motivating thing that if I can narrow this gap, then you'll start to make, make strides forward. In my last year, I really kind of took a different approach. I realized that physically was the main way that I was going to actually um, make the most out of the year. So my last year, I would work out probably about four times, five times a week. So I would start, um, if we played Saturday, Sunday, I would, and we won in three, I would go and work out after those games and then usually do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I would take Thursday off for yoga. And then I would play Friday, Saturday for the next week. And this was definitely not sanctioned by Dave. This was definitely not sanctioned by anyone. And this was kind of me getting let in by, by some friends to the gym. Cause I made buddies with uh, a lot of the student student trainers. And yeah, I, I, I kind of took that upon myself and that was a, a really fun way that I could 
uh, see my improvement continue to grow outside of the gym because you're limited is to how many people are practiced. Do people miss because of classes? Um, things like that. I always chose my classes so that I would never miss practice because that's what that's what I was at for. For example, and. As you're going through that season, did you ever feel burnt out or worn down? Or you guys were rolling pretty good, so I imagine you did win in three quite a bit. But did you ever feel physically that you're just like this? This is too much, and you're kind of looking forward to that. Well, actually, I can't even say you're looking forward to the holiday break because you guys have played tournaments over the holiday break. So did, did the season ever feel really long that you were just going straight for almost five six months? No, um, I think a lot of the time Dave did a really good job of making our practices harder than any of the games, and because of the team that we had. Like, for example, we would do a high ball drill and you would have to score three high balls in a row. Um, but you would be put on the second side. So you would play against the first team to score three high balls. And you would also have three different people set you the high balls. So it also depend on their level of competency to set. And that was a fun way of that competitive nature, like, because it would never be, for example, me versus Coker and Alex. It would be me versus Jay and Danny. And <laughs> it would be as difficult as it could possibly be for you to get out of that drill. And when you train like that, um, the games seem easier and they are easier because by, by the end of the time, if you win in three or you win in four, you probably do less jumps than you would in a hard practice. So, um, physically I was, I was quite good, but I think about just past halfway, I realized that I only did four years, but I realized that it was probably time to leave. Just a, a quick comment on that drill design. Do you think that brought the team together? Because like you said, three different guys. So now as a leader on the team, you're trying to get the second libero, the third libero, maybe the fifth left side to actually help you win the drill. So now you're engaging with them where some coaches always like to play their ones versus the twos, or maybe you just don't connect or, or feel like you're competing with some of the guys lower on the depth chart, right? Well, it's interesting also with pro, like to be totally honest, like, if it's extremely frustrating if you're the first side and you lose to the second side, but even if you beat the second side, it's, you're supposed to beat them. So it, I honestly, I don't really, I like kind of mixing it around and um, yeah, I, I think in that drill, because it kind of singles the player out, this one who has to score, it really does single you out and it really does show your level of competency because your teammates know you so well. So if you are a one dimensional player, that drill is going to be extremely difficult for you. And you will, in terms of frustration and relationships getting put quite tense, let's say that drill always brought it out because it was really an evaluation of you and your competency. Um, so I think both sides and everybody was, it was a quite intense gym. So everybody knew that training, like if you're set and bad, you're going to hear about it because it's putting the guy on the line who's not going to be able to get out of the drill. And then, so yeah. So if also, maybe I didn't clarify this. Um, if you don't score those balls or you get stopped, you start again and you keep going. So you also get more and more tired, more, because it's always you who has to score. So it's uh, it's quite a fun drill, to be honest. But it uh, brought a brought a lot out of everybody, which I liked. 
Yeah, man, that's awesome. And I want to pull on your point earlier where you mentioned four years was going to be enough. You already had a little bit of contact through Dave with an agent. But if I'm remembering this correctly, you and Riley Barnes were kind of two of the first cats to really get really big league offers out of U Sports where we've had other guys on the show where they felt like they had to go to FTC. They had to get stronger. They had to get more used to the program. What was it like for you after four years of OUA and U Sports able to make the jump to Italy? Um. That last year was really helpful for me. Like I, I probably weigh quite similar to what I weighed at the end of that. And like, I was quite physically, I, I'm not so like my numbers right now are not so different than where I was when I was, let's say 21 coming up where I think some guys, maybe they actually do need to, to get that. Cause it just so happened that I, the games weren't as intense. So I was able to make use of more of the physical side of that year and really get the most out of that. Um, Dave, uh, Dave's agreement with me was, was quite simple. It was, I can't actually do anything for you, but I can have the people come. So they can come. And if you are good enough, they'll tell you you're good enough. Just like last time. And so it's really the balls in your court. Um, so myself, Riley Barnes and Brett Walsh were the three first players, three first Canadian players that, um, there's two main agencies in the world that, um, the one that I'm speaking of is mine. They're based in Italy and Modena. Um, we were the first three Canadian players that they had ever signed. So that was, uh, quite a large, that was quite a large step for Canadian volleyball. If I'm, if I'm totally honest and, uh, I, I hold a lot of responsibility to make sure that the, the younger and newer players that are signed to that agency are aware of the name that they put on Canadian volleyball when they come overseas and what they represent and the traits that they, they exude for their clubs because um, it really does go a long way. And could you expand on that? What it goes a long way? Like I, I, I always laugh again doing this show. I get to talk to so many interesting people that like it's not unusual for a club to keep signing Canadians. Like I know it changes, but like Lunenburg just seems like a factory. There's a bunch of other clubs that uh, are you kind of saying that because you're a Canadian and you were honest and hardworking and had a good experience that when they're looking at another Canadian, they might draw back on your experience and say, you know what, we had a, a good experience with this Canadian guy. Let's go take a look at this guy. Exactly. Uh, they will paint you with the same brush until you give them a reason not to, um, which I think is, it can, some people might say, oh, that's not fair. Well, if you're great, hardworking, easy to coach, and you have, and you're always showing up to be a professional, then that's an incredibly great thing because maybe it's you or an American guy. Maybe they had a bad experience with an American. And the only reason they took you is because that's because of your, because of the flag. That's really it. So, um, decisions and deals and offers are made for less. So, um, yeah, I, I really, I really think that that is an important thing. And I, I do try to speak to a lot of the young players in, in the national team about that because, um, it's not, it's not only your contract you're representing, but it's future contracts. So, uh, yeah, it's quite like that. And when you look back at your first few years of pro, what was it like getting comfortable? Because obviously you're in a foreign country. You're playing in a top league that has pretty tight import rules. Like I'm looking at some of the rosters. I don't think you played with a fellow Canadian for a few years now, right? I know once or twice you got to play with Americans. But what was it like even just culturally jumping into a situation where you're the only North American there other than maybe one American, right? Yeah, so uh, 
I actually found my first year to be quite difficult, but I had a lot of foreign players. Uh, so that was, um, there was other people in similar circumstances. Um, but my first year, I was signed to be one of the, the main guys. Um, so I have the ability to, to kind of fill that space if I have to. And I was able to actually do that quite well, I think, in Padova. And um, I was able to end up, I think I was like ninth in scoring in the league in my first year. So I was able to to really kind of fill that. And there was a lot of English on that team. So um, if you look at Padova's uh, rosters, they always have a really good scout. And they also have a lot of great players who start in Padova and then move to other teams in Italy. So... Um, yeah, Rally Barnes played there. Eric Lepke played there. For example, all the Japanese players are starting there. Uh, Ishikawa, uh, Takahashi, and they have another uh, Japanese player there. So they're kind of also a funnel of once they identify a certain type of player, certain background of the player that they like, they try to continue to assign them. So that's really, really cool for them. Um, my second year was quite a difficult experience, to be totally honest. Uh, I had a tough time because that was the first year that I really understood I was playing for money. Um, I made quite a significant jump in my contract value uh, from my first year to my second year. And I really struggled with um, the self-critical nature of being a professional and sometimes it not always going the way you want it to go. A couple of injuries, but also then realizing how much people are paying for you to be there and that kind of weighed on my mind a lot. So that was actually quite a, that was, that was my worst year of professional by far in my second year. And does that also come from coach and ownership or were you putting a lot of pressure on yourself? Cause listening to uh read pretty when he was in a slump one year in Russia, like his coach was not shy to almost treat him like a video game and said, Hey, we bought you with these attributes and we expect these stats and you're not giving us that output. Like was that something you felt from your club or was it mostly internal? I was a bit of both. Um, I had uh, one of the best players ever to live as my coach. So Nikola Gerbich, a um, little medalist setter for two countries, Yugoslavia and Serbia. <laughs> so uh, he was amazing, but it's also tough when it's his expectations are as high as they come. Um, and he's a great guy. And I, I think I just, I wasn't, I didn't quite know how to handle that yet. Um, but no, I think a lot of the pressure was put on myself. So I, I also really had to learn to to start to deal with what that life was like and what it's like to like you're judged at the competency of your job in front of thousands of people on a weekly basis and what that who you have to be to who you have to become to really be able to handle something like that. And what were some strategies you used that you wouldn't mind sharing to either coaches or young listeners? Like, were you a big journal guy? Were you making time to phone family and friends back home? Like, what were some things that get you through those tough moments? Were you still a big lover of video and you're trying to, like, figure out the the solution for some of your tactics? Like, what goes into a situation like that? Um, I had started uh, meditating the year before. So that became a pretty constant practice. Um, And honestly, I actually... Two things. This is going to sound. I, I don't really do this anymore, ever. But I actually bought a PlayStation because I needed to actually disconnect from volleyball. So I would play some mindless game for just an hour when I got home, just so I could get my mind off of running over. Oh, I did this in practice. I made this mistake. I shouldn't have done that. 
blah, 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 blah. And I couldn't find a way to actually push the noise out of my mind. Um, so meditation was, I think the functional way of dealing with that. Um, video games was a distracting way. Um, but I really found a, a bit more of a joy in being able to succeed in something else. So I, I'm a lover of the, the weight room and that, that is a measure of effort generally. So if you put more effort in, you receive more volleyball necessarily isn't always that way. So I was able to still make pro- quote unquote progressions in life uh, and in my career in something outside of the result of a practice or a game. So I, I put a lot of thought into that and that kind of was able to relax me a bit. And to take one more jump forward here on your pro journey, uh, you, you take a stop in Russia and you get a contract with Moscow. What was the conversation with your agent there and what made you kind of want to switch lanes and leave Italy and go to Russia for a year? Um, I had a pretty good, I had a pretty solid year in Milan the year before. And I had received Dinamo Moscow was a team I had watched since I was in first university in Champions League. Um, really cool city. Um, yeah, the, the league is also a very different league. It's, uh, the, the physicality of that league is incredible. Like serving and blocking everybody is phenomenal. Um, technically and tactically, maybe a little less so but uh, in respect to Italy, but it is, it's an extremely difficult place to play. And that year I was kind of aware that I might have to play the Olympic qualifier against Cuba. And Cuba is incredibly gifted at that serving and blocking. So I thought what better way to prepare for that game than all year long. And I guess lastly, but definitely not least, there was quite a large, um, financial incentive to also go to <laughs> Russia. Um, Russia is a league that only has two foreigners per team. So there is a, quite a large budget for for foreign players, but there is also a large, uh, like you mentioned before with Reed Pretty, there is a large amount of expectation on foreign players as well. So uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting move for sure. Let's jump there because you did bring up the Cuba situation and planning ahead for that. So uh, I, I think it's it's one of the greatest moments in, in Canadian volleyball, but it, it didn't start off that way. You guys go down 0-2 at home. Do you remember the moment of that match? Like, were, were you starting to feel the pinch a little bit? Were you pretty calm? Like, uh, hearing from guys on the squad, like, you guys were playing well. You just weren't getting the results. So what did it feel like when you guys went down 0-2 there? Um. If I'm totally candid, uh, I've really learned a significant lesson um, at the qualifier in China months prior. I I was the third spiker at the time. Nick and Gord were playing amazing. And uh, um, the team was playing so well in training. And we had to beat Argentina, China, and I think it was Finland. So it was pretty much us versus Argentina. Uh, China was a lot weaker then, um, and Finland was as well. And the team was playing so well that I honestly, this is going to sound crazy, but mentally I wasn't prepared to play. I wasn't prepared to prepared to come off the bench because I was like, there's no way these guys are not going to annihilate them. And, um, as the match started, it was clear that that was not going to be the case. And uh, a couple of guys got pulled and I went in and I, I had a good match. I definitely had a good match, but I didn't have a great match 
And that was one of the first times I felt that I had to learn the lesson of like, you can only really control what is in your hands. And I cannot control how my teammates play. I cannot control really anything but how I prepare the work I put in and what I bring to the table on that day. So I did a lot of reflection and work with our sports psychologist and I actually stopped drinking, started weighing my food and every single possibility I had to put my body or my technique in a better position for the game against Cuba. I did for about four and a half months. Um, so when that game came around, I had an because in the Argentina game, I had moments of, oh, I wish I was jumping a bit higher right now. Or, hey, if you hadn't skipped that workout, maybe your knees would be feeling better right now. Wish I'd passed a bit more. Maybe, I, maybe I'd be passing better right now. And these, all these little things start coming into the back of your mind when you know maybe you didn't put in all the work you could have been putting in. And when we went down against Cuba, there was silence in my mind because I knew there was nothing else I possibly could have done. And that allowed me to, to have a face of white calm and serenity, actually, of looking people in the face and saying, like, well, really, it's going to be one point at a time and we're going to have to come back out and just do, do our best. But I actually had no anxiety at all in that, uh, in that match. And that was probably the, probably the most proud moment I've ever been of myself in my life, actually. That's, that, that's amazing. And were you able to, to keep up those habits as you went into the Olympics or obviously the COVID distractions and everything? Like, is that still something you value today or did you kind of ease off the, the obsession of, of doing every little detail like that? I think things like that are reserved for when you're squeezing the last bits. When you, if you have a towel, like a wet towel, you squeeze the last little bit out because I don't think a lot of those habits are sustainable for extreme long periods of time, but I think they're sustainable for very short periods of time and their effects can be quite beneficial. Now, I think my base level commitment, uh, work level and intensity is a lot higher than it used to be. Um, so maybe I don't necessarily need to do as much of like total drastic measures. Um, but going into well, for example, going into this qualifier, I was in a very similar place. I had stopped drinking. I was extremely committed on whatever sort of body, health, body maintenance I could be doing. And I think for me, that was in a, a very, very formative mental, let's say, serenity or clarity period as well, where I, I don't think I would have been able to play as well as I was able to play in this qualifier or even probably able to play the matches I was able to play, all of them. Uh, had I not been doing that. So yeah, I think there's some definite benefits to it, but I, I don't think it's sustainable for year in, year out. So when you put this much into your prep and you're such a, just a, a complete warrior in the weight room, when, when something comes up that maybe you're back at the service line at the Olympics, are you able to look around and be like how cool this is and kind of appreciate that the work got you to this moment? Or like, are you, do you find yourself just always so dialed when you're on the court? Um, I'm actually trying to get a bit out of that now, which I think I don't want to say it like this, but it might be an easier thing to say now because I'm, I'm here, but I'm trying to actually enjoy the moment a bit more and not be re like waiting for it to end because there is 
when you play a match at this level and you're, let's say there's 3,000, 4,000 people here and you're, let's say this year, we're playing, playing Lube at home, Chip Denova, and we're getting closer. We've won the first two sets. You're getting closer. You have a break point. Now it's 1916. You're getting closer to the end of the match and the anticipation is growing so high that it almost is a relief that it works as opposed to a joy of the moment and joy of being in that moment. Um, and I, I was actually, I've been challenged on that with a couple of books and podcasts that I've been reading, uh, listening to. Of, is it really possible to, to kind of take a step back and just look around and enjoy it? Um, I think for me, I was a lot more proud and happy for how that qualifier worked out than I was to go to the games. Because that's that was really an affirmation of all the work that I had done since I was 15 that I decided I really wanted to go to the games that we had qualified and I had helped my friends and my country go. And something that I did for the greater collective was able to, um, to impact that. And I think that's probably more of the pride that I had than I was to, Oh, I'm at the games now. And I think that's kind of also where it's changed. Like I was happy to go before, whereas this time around, I want a result. So I think that's probably a bit of the actual maturity and difference of experience versus one time going to the games one time and hopefully going the second time body, body and everything aligned. Yeah, for sure. Like I think your, your maturity and age and just length of career goes into that. I'm wondering if, if the roster changing also kind of generates that for you where you were kind of the younger guy, but now TJ, Gord, Graham, Blair, like all these guys step away from the squad. Like, do you feel expectations or even a little bit of pressure to take on a different role with the squad now that you've kind of lost that, that, that first generation who came through JVD, like all these guys, it, it seems like a different squad now, right? Yeah, it's, it's very different. Uh, I think my, what my expectations and what my role has, and I've, I've kind of fit into it. I think there's some guys who do, do an incredible job of, of, of leading. Um, and I, I really just focus on the level on the floor. I, I don't really think I spend as much time of leadership, let's say outside of of that environment, but that is an environment I'm, I'm extremely sensitive and attentive to. And that's something I really enjoy. Um, so I think I'm, I'm quite happy with my role now, uh, of where the team is. And I feel like it's a bit more of say more of my team now, whereas I'm, yeah, when the ball's on the line, it, it's more likely I'm going to be getting the ball than for example, I think the last, uh, generation was Gord. I think that's the guy you're going to at, in those moments. So I feel like um, I feel like I've been able to kind of step into that role, and and that's been something that's a welcome challenge for me. And when you're at your level, and obviously like excluding pro, because you played for some absolutely amazing coaches in pro, but even with the national team, uh, three coaches in three years. How does a guy of your caliber and your level find the point of accepting the system they want to install and what they think is best for Team Canada? And you may be advocating for what your skill set is, because obviously it changes every time you get a new coach. But how have you kind of dialed in that this is my skill set, this is what I can do to help the team, but also complement maybe what Thomas wants to do? Um, and like, 
first and foremost, the thing that I think brought me to where I am is I was a student of the game and I enjoyed that. So I try and look at most situations as what I can take, what, what am I missing? What is this person seeing? And there's obviously value in this, um, there's obviously value in this person's opinion. So what can I take from that? And that generally allows me to, to try whatever, whatever it is that they're looking for me to do. Um, I definitely, there's definitely a point to where that ends. Uh, but I definitely think that there's, there's something you can take from everybody. And um, Thomas, for example, is someone who has really brought us back to basics. And that is, that is the main focus. And it's actually opened up my eyes to some things that I was doing, let's say movements or, or almost biomechanic movements, same with Ben Joe, biomechanic movements where I'm inefficient, where I'm inefficient. So there was sometimes where I didn't, I knew, let's say, for example, I knew I was over rotating on my left hand as I was blocking, but I didn't know why. People would say, keep your left hand straight and see the line. But I, I tried and it just kept going in. And I think for the value that some people can provide is they can give you a, a piece of the puzzle and a clue. And if you keep thinking about it, you keep experimenting, you can slowly figure out the solutions. Like no coach is going to give you the ability to play, but they can give you an intriguing question. They can give you, why did you do that? And if you're someone who's receptive and coachable, then you, you reminisce on that. You think about it and you can actually find a lot of quite high level discoveries just in a relationship like that. that that's amazing. And have you felt like you, you've done that your whole career? Or is that something that just came with maturity that you were open to these conversations and you never really felt like threatened or criticized when you're getting this level of feedback? I, I've been quite fortunate. I've had a lot of great coaches. So, um, I have a lot of, I generally, you have my respect before you walk in the door until you lose it. And then I, I will admit that I'm, I'm not the best person. Like if you've lost my respect, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not your ally. So, and I, I'm a stronger personality with that, that, uh, it's, it's quite clear. So, um, but I found that I've been able to learn a lot from each each one of my coaches, and I, and I, I've had I don't know I had like probably one or maybe two negative experiences with a coach. So um, I can't say that that that's been a, a big thing, but I, I've really tried to take what I can learn, and I don't think it was always conscious, but it was just my respect for the coach and trying to be coachable. Um, kind of brought that out and I, I naturally was a student of the game. So I was trying to take, like, maybe this, maybe this is a way to solve a different kind of problem. And, and a lot of the time it was. This is awesome, man. So while we're on this, let's just go behind the scenes here. Uh, roller coaster of a ride with the national team. So when did you finally arrive with the squad? I know Thomas was in club championships. So it was a little late. Like, did you guys basically go to VNL and kind of meet the roster there? Or did everybody get a chance to meet and get no first? Uh, I think we met, maybe we had a week, maybe something like that. Um, and for anyone who was watching our, um, our systems, uh, from the year prior to that year, it was quite a, quite a different way of playing. So I think there was, a 
I think there was a large amount of adaptation that needed to happen back towards um, a more simple style of volleyball. And I think um, the schedule honestly didn't do us a lot of favors because there was some big games at the beginning that we needed to really do well for, and we hadn't really had time to prepare. So um, unfortunately, we, we dropped. We were luck- not lucky, but we played well to win the Cuba game. They made a lot of errors, but yeah, we dropped big one Germany, and then yeah, we had a, we had a pretty tough road. Um, uh, for us, we were to be honest, we were, we were battling to just stay in BNL, and even just looking at BNL for next year, like it was, it was an incredible amount of high level teams that are there, and teams that if they're on a good day, like it's going to be an extremely difficult game. Is that something you felt as a player, like going into that last week, the last match? Like, I think people who figured out the math realized that we were on the bubble, but did the team room draw attention to that? Or you were just game planning like it was the same game, at, playing at the super high level? No, we were aware. We, we, uh, we were speaking about it um, a couple of days prior, actually. Um, I personally was dealing with a decent amount of fluid and stuff in my knee, and, and it was it was... There was not really much to say. It was kind of take a couple of painkillers and and everybody was pretty banged up by that point, just the amount of travel and games and everything that we had dealt with. And everybody was quite aware of the reality of our situation and and that we probably wouldn't have any time off at all had we not qualified. Sorry, had we not remained in BNL because we would have had to play the Challenger Cup. And that was also a realization. Um and for people who are not aware of the international calendar, like, like I had six days off after the professional season. Oh gosh! And like, okay, yes, you have weekends off sometimes in national team, but that's only when you're training. And other than that, like, you're looking at one day off a week for most of the year. So to have like potential like 10, 10 days a week taken away because you don't win this one game. Like there's a high level of pressure. There's guys and families. There's, there's a lot of different uh, emotions going through. And the one thing that I will say is uh, girlfriends, wives, spouses, significant others. Um, yeah. They, you can feel the the nervous energy from their side too. That like, Oh, like you're not coming home. If you don't win this game, like, did you sleep well? Are you eating? Okay. Like, how do you feel? You feel good. And there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that everybody has to deal with. So there's a lot going into that game. Wow. And I understand uh, Thomas is such a player's coach that uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, that sometimes you guys would cancel servant pass where I think some traditionalists are like, no, you got to wake up, you got to activate where sometimes maybe it's a 40 minute ride to the venue, then you got to warm up, you might get a half hour to an hour worth of work, then you got to fuel, you go home, you rest for the match where when you were giving it up, did you feel like you were giving up any confidence or routine or like the, the sleep was more important and you could still maybe do bands or activate in the hallway or wherever you guys needed to go? Like, what, what did you think of this move? Because I think there's coaches out there being like, no, we're not skipping serving pass for any reason. Yeah, I, I think Thomas was an extremely high-level player. So at the end of the day, I think he's quite – he psychoanalyzes everything. Like he is, he is a professional's professional. He is – I respect him tremendously. Um, but he would 
he would know. There's guys just wanting to touch the ball just for that last little perfect rep. When in reality, you don't need it. And that's the thing. As I've gotten older, I realized I have a jump count in the morning. I don't ever go over my jump. Even if I hit every serve out, I will not go over my jump count, which I never will. But let's just, let's just, there's a system to doing things. And he didn't honestly give us the choice to be totally honest. He would, he would just tell us like, you're not doing anything. You're doing stretching and foam rolling and bands. And there was no, that's the one thing I, I found that I really appreciate. Everyone's roles are extremely defined. So if my role is to be the best player I can be, and that's my role, my job is not to coach the team, not to do more than I need to be doing, then you stay in your lane and it will be decided for you. And then you do the best with what you have. And that's, that's your job. And some people might say, Oh, like that's too over constricting, but I will, for someone who judges, like my respect for a person is, is incredibly important. And if you are someone with the integrity that is unquestionable as a coach, then you can make requests of your players to put aside their discomforts or their thoughts or their grudges to get them to do what you want them to do because they cannot question you because you are a professional. Um, and I think that's one of the, the best forms of leadership that I've witnessed uh, in my life. And I'm incredibly grateful to have. Let's take it one step further. So you guys do take down that China match. You stay in VNL and you get a little bit of a break. Does that allow for an install of the system, a little bit of in, uh, regrouping, a little bit of rest? Like, how did you feel going into the Olympic qualifier? We were originally supposed to, I think, have, uh, we were originally supposed to have two weeks off and they got shortened to 10 days. And I think the team needed to work, honestly. The team needed to work and work hard together. And the team needed to become a team. So a lot of what we did, honestly, we went to the beach and we're doing conditioning and suffered. And we were doing just cone running, just, just, just grunt drills, just to build our capacity to work. And what was incredible with that is we all suffered together. And when you say suffer together, you have an incredible amount of respect and everybody is buying in with the same level of effort and you can see it and the staff is holding to the same way. And when something like that is in the works, you start to believe in something. Cause like I said before, the work is what makes you believe in something. And if like, I know there was a lot of teams that were not running through the sand and suffering 10, like nine days after they had just won that game. Like I know that was not the case. And but that's also what we need to do because we hadn't been playing together for four or five years, like some of these teams. And we were not like, not everybody was playing at a high level before. And we had to kind of make some of that ground up. And I think they did a really good job of managing the level of how much we can push the guys without breaking them down too far. And, and the guys did a really good job of, there was everything to us. Like there wasn't in years past, there's let's say more going out in the middle of the week, a lot of more social stuff. A lot. There was a lot of. You wouldn't have survived going out in the middle of the week in these in these sessions. And we, some of the older guys, were talking about that together. It was like this is cool because 
a lot of that behavior wouldn't be, it's not that you couldn't do it, like you weren't allowed, but you would never make it through the session, which felt good, felt like we were on the right track. And with a schedule and a format like that, is it is it natural to start like pre-scouting and going through like the schedule? Or were you guys honestly just getting so comfortable with each other that it was mostly focused on like your system, your tactics that you weren't necessarily, you know, advanced scouting for the Netherlands game or anything that was coming up? I think maybe the we went to Japan a little bit before the qualifier and we were able to do maybe a little bit three or four days before, but it was the the lion's share of that stuff is how how well are we playing? Like what's the bulk of our what's the bulk of our work like? What's the bulk of our ability to improve gonna look like? And that and that's the that's the reality. Who's our, who's gonna be on the floor? What are our roles? And how well can you do your role? And and guys really bought into to what was asked of them, and that was selfless for a lot of them. And this is amazing. So as the schedule lays out, like it's a pretty unforgiving format that only the top two are going to get through. Like, are you guys aware of checkpoints and you're on pace, you're on mission? Are you looking at the rest of the table? Like, where does your focus naturally go? Maybe by like the second or third day that you guys are like, you know, you you have a a great chance to get it done. One of the things that we talked about is players and this was a players meeting. Um, Myself and a couple of the older guys had been in tournaments, let's say more tournaments like this before, where there's people calculating, people doing the math on things that are not in your control because it's not during the game. It's not teams that you, this team should be this team, but not in your control. And those moments always filled me with anxiety. And I know it made other people feel anxious, like, oh, if this happens and this happens and if we just do this and then that. And you're spending and you're inputting energy into the world that is not beneficial to what your mission is. And your mission is what am I going to do today to best perform, to best prepare me to perform tomorrow. And that's really the only thing that's in your control. And uh, we made a rule on within the team, not to speak about it. No one was to speak about the math. Nobody was to speak about other games at dinners and lunches. I don't want to, I was quite bold. I don't want to hear about another team. And there's okay, maybe once or twice it broke through. Whereas Germany, Germany just won five games with like Germany's doing. Like, okay, that's not our pool. Great. But the guys were quite good on maybe it was in, in the rooms, but I I have Brett Walsh in my room and that was another guy who commands a tremendous amount of respect and integrity. And yeah, it was it was as businesslike as it can come. We are we are here for today, and Thomas kept kept like that was just right there held over our heads. Like, what are we doing today? And um, yeah, there was not a lot of talk of anything like that because I think that would have really derailed us. That, that, that's amazing but to my, hear. My personal point of view. Sorry to, to interrupt. But my personal point of view was, I said to the guys and some of my friends, so not. Not as like a talk to the team, but some of my friends. I believe that we're going to win these first two games, and if we win these first two games, we're going to be shot. And that is the only expectation or prediction. I don't want to use those words, but that is the only thought process I had leading into the qualifier. And when you said players meeting, is that something that happens formally that the guys are calling it? Is this something that happens over a meal together? Like uh, how tight is the squad and when do these conversations tend to come up? 
we talked about it. Uh, we just we said that we wanted to have a couple of words uh, just before we went to a training session. So there's, let's say there's a room in the hotel that's uh, available. We'll just say we'll meet here 15 minutes. We just want to chat. And if anybody has any questions or anybody has anything that they want to say, you're more than welcome to speak. Um, kind of just round table, but there's like, there was a couple of things that needed to be addressed just as the tournament was about to start. And, um, yeah. I think, I think we're pretty, pretty good at being able to speak to each other and, and understand why things are being said. And I think that's an important thing. Like it's not just to say, don't, don't do this and then just leave it at that. But it's probably best we don't speak like this because this is this is the risk and this is my anecdotal experience with that risk in the past of this team. And I don't want that for us. And I think there's a couple other older, more more experienced players who are able to kind of also weigh in on on these sort of topics and and we were able to, to kind of move forward as a unit together. And with you sharing all the details and everything that went into it what's the feeling when you guys take it down and you qualify? Like, is it just pure joy? Is it mission accomplished? Are you already thinking now we got the next goal ahead of us? Like, do, do you let yourself kind of thrive and really enjoy that moment when it clicks in? I have a different opinion. Um, I really had a hard, I really lost a lot of, um, I don't know, I'll say this like this. I mourned the qualifier when we lost to Belgium because I really believe that it was kind of gone. And I really believe we had our opportunities, we had our chances and we let it go. And I found it really tough to emotionally engage back with something. And I am quite an emotional person and I, I found it tough to actually buy back into that hope again. Um, obviously the tournament wasn't over and obviously there was a lot of things that could happen, but I just felt like the things that were in my control and our control as a team, we now had to wait on someone else. And it felt like that we had kind of let that go. So I had a, I had a tough time kind of also celebrating because I felt quite conflicted until I saw a couple of friends and they, their smiles and their joy. And that was able to kind of radiate for me. And then, and then I was able to kind of work through that in, it was it was a really special experience to see some of my friends, like for example, Danny. I spoke with Danny when we were fifteen, local in the Olympics, and he was not able to go to Tokyo. And he worked so hard and be, completely changed the man he was to who he is now, and to 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 arrive at that point. Brett Walsh, guys I've played with for guys I've known for 10, 11 years, achieved one of the, one of their lifetime goals. And so when you see stuff like that and, and you're a part of it, it's, it's special because there's not a lot of things in this world that some of your closest friends will all be able to put, like put themselves wholly into and to be working together with a group of people for years for a result and against a lot of odds still achieve it. So yeah, it's, but that stuff, it, it brings, immense source of pride 
Man, this this is so cool. I can't thank you enough for sharing all that you did. I just have uh, one more question in my notes here. The, the more you talk about having a mission and your ability to boil things down to a singular focus and your role within the team, uh, I got to know for selfish reasons, hopefully we can pass this on to some younger players, but what do you think about the serving game and your ability to go over and just take over matches and influence matches? Like, are you this common collected at the service line? Are you thinking this is my chance to earn points and point break situations for my squad? Are you thinking tactics? like what goes into your serving game because hearing about how you think about the game is just so fascinating and I think this is one area that you always kind of influence what's happening is just at the baseline with your serve um I wasn't always like this um I think a lot of my steps forward physically allowed me to care more about service because when you're in pain for example this is a bit of a side side answer but when you're in pain you're not looking to dominate. You're not looking to be the guy. You're looking to, to get by. And I think serving is, is a risk-reward, and I'm sure everybody is thinking about. You also kind of know what kind of a server you are. So it depends. Like If I am one of the guys on my team who's – I'm a point-scoring guy. I'm a guy who will try and change, try and change the fate of a set or a match then that also influences how I will behave and how I will serve and how I will approach a serve. Um, I haven't been uh, more of a tactical guy in a long time, so I don't know if I can speak too well to that. Um, but there's rotations and there's players that you know. There's player at the end, for example. The serve that I think I will score a point on most likely is the one sideline or the one six team. But there's a good chance the first two rotations, because I'll generously serve three times in a set. Um, I'll go to serve probably the guy in five the first time around. And I'll probably maybe even serve the second time around. Because at the end of the set, when everything's on the line, people tend to go to where they feel the most comfortable, what they're best at. And But I'll probably try and open up a little space on that one sideline just for the time when I need it. The time, because a point at 5-5 five, five is not the same as a point at 22-22. Because at 22-22, if someone gets an ace, the amount of value that has for your team and the amount of value that takes away from the other team, that is worth an incredible amount more. And that can change how people's, that can change the energy of the team. Volleyball is a complete momentum sport. So um, I try and set up what I'm going to do from the first serve for what I want two serves later. Um, but really at the end, there are certain guys who don't, in my opinion, don't want to receive at the end of the game. They don't want the pressure of receiving. And that has a lot to do with people's body language and their eyes. And you can kind of see people who are a little less confident. And those are the people you attack and you go after at those moments. And I think, not, no, not in sorry, a predatory way, but like <laughs> you're looking to you're you're looking to take things from people. And and that's the person that I that I become when I play. And that, that that person is not a good person to always be walking around on the street. <laughs> so it's uh, it, it's an ebb and a flow. But I think when you start to identify what you're best at 
what you can do to set that up for the moments when you really need it. And you can start to identify who is the weakest link, not just technically, but mentally, like who is weak on their team that you want to attack. Then you start to have the, all the ability for a game plan. And like, I'm not talking about a team game plan. I'm talking about like, how are you going to beat them? Because the ownership is on you and on the service line. Like how block defense sets up, how all these sorts of things. That's, that's statistics. That's coaches land. That's, but serving is the one time where you can get control and you decide. Um, especially if you're someone in my situation. If you're a tactical server, I don't have as much information for you because um, I'm not that guy. So I'm not going to speak to that because I, I, I don't really think like that. So, yeah, I hope that answers your question. The, this is amazing, man. So the, that mindset you have and, and like that that you're going for with this fierce attitude, is that something you've been comfortable with just as a competitive guy growing up? Or is that something you had to practice and bring attention to? Like, do you find yourself getting into that headspace in training as well? Or does it take like a game situation for you to find that mindset? I, I am some of my friends. I, I, I've had to go to some of my friends because I'm, I'm pretty much two different people in the game and in, in the training. I'm, in the training, I get frustrated, and angry a lot more. I'm, I, I really try and push expectations high for myself and for people. And I'm much more conflict prone um, during training than I am in a match. But I do that in a way to provide intensity and pressure in training. So I like to arrive at that place. Um, but like I said, like, the serve that I do at 7-6 is not going to be the same type of serve that I'm doing at 22-22. And that's, and that's because those are the moments that define who are the best players. Because that's when you realize you are, you are the guy. So where Gord was at the end of the line, I watched and I realized I knew I wasn't getting that ball because I wasn't that guy yet. He was getting that ball because he was the guy. And you start to realize there are there are different how you interact with your team and how you build rapport and who you are really defined is defined also in the risks that you take. And I think that's, um, that's something that the more you arrive into that space, the easier it is to turn it on. And that's the type of player I want to play as all the time. Man, this has been amazing. Uh, I wish we could talk longer. I know you're playing in Italy where, uh, you you, we were talking before the show about the, the holiday break or lack thereof there. So uh, yeah. I think I've taken enough of your time for one day, but I want to thank you for coming on and sharing so much. This is awesome. And, and congratulations for everything that you've achieved and, and job's not finished. You got a big, big things left in your career and uh, we'll be rooting for you, man. Thanks again. Thanks. I appreciate it.